Welcome to Board Gamers Anonymous, episode 108. This week's episode, the top 13 Halloween games. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Cthulhu, for bringing the madness this week. You're listening to a proud member of the Dice Tower Network, dedicated to bringing podcasters together for the greater good of gaming. It's sort of like Voltron, but with better lip syncing. Find out more at Dicetowernetwork.com. Welcome to Bold Gamers Anonymous, the podcast about board gamers and the insane fun we have at the table together. This is Chris. This is Anthony. Hi. Um, and this is Daniel. Oh, come on, guys. We practiced this. Come on. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. At least Drew's in the spirit. Hold on. Let me let me get the Ouija board. All right. Uh, okay. Drew, um, come on. Sign in, Drew. Uh, uh-huh. Uh, yeah. Uh, okay. Uh-huh. Uh, and, oh, so there's, there's a D, and there's an R, and E, and Drew. And Drew is here this week with us from beyond... We are channeling the spirit of colleagues past and, well, hopefully future again. We'll see. We haven't heard from Drew for a while. He the hasn't spirit, been around. The spirit of our still alive co-host, Drew. <laughs> yeah. Or is he? Yeah, we should like put a caveat here. The joke is that he hasn't been around for a while. Nothing happened to Drew. He's okay. It'll be the whole episode, Chris. Or is it? <laughs> Bum, bum, bum. All right. So now that we have the whole crew together, whether it's in corporeal form or not, we're glad to bring you this special Halloween episode. We're going to bring you all the spookiness, all the horror games you could possibly imagine with our top 13 horror, ghost, aliens, spooky, every type of great board game that you want to get to the table during the season. Let's get on to the episode. Shout it from the tabletops! Sir, you're gonna need to get down from there. Alright, so now on to our seance table, where we join hands and we delve deep into the mysterious madness that is board games. So that means... News from BGA. Anthony? Who's so spooky? We don't even have real news this week. It's just me updating you guys on the stuff I'm doing on the side. So that could be terrifying. I don't know. It depends. Like if you have limited podcast listening time uh-huh. and I have a new podcast and now you're like, how do I fit in a new podcast? Terrified yet? A no? little. I mean, there's a little madness going on about what which one to pick and how I should arrange that. So it's Cthulhu-esque, but that's as far as I'm willing to go at this point. Mm-hmm. No physical danger, but no. sanity. Yeah. What I'm talking about here, in case you missed the last episode, is Table for One. It's my weekly solo podcast. I have settled in. It is weekly. Um, and the reason for that is it's about 20 to 30 minutes. It's just me most of the time. Although last week I did have a guest on, Jason, who's a long-term listener of uh, Board Gamers Anonymous, and we talked about the Oniverse. So it is a uh, very specific podcast for people who like solo games. I don't really talk about anything else except sometimes this is how this solo game plays with other people if it has a multiplayer variant. So if you like solo games, think you might, or 
or maybe about to have a child and think that it's in your future, this is a great podcast to listen to. I think so, anyways, because I'm on it. So let me get this straight. So you do a solo podcast, and then all of a sudden, there was a Skype call coming from inside the house. Yeah, oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, cool. Yeah, there was right. a disembodied voice in the uh-huh. last episode. There huh. you go. Nice. Huh. And you call him <laughs> what again? Jason. Ooh, all right. <laughs> He's going to call me after this and be like, what the hell, man? (laughs) Um, But no, it's a really good episode. And the Oniverse is kind of the foundation of solo games, at least for me and and for Jason. That's why he came on. So definitely check that out. The next episode, which comes out the same week as this, if you're listening to this, I will be talking about the solo version of a game we'll be talking about later today. So worth checking it out if you're interested in both sides of the coin. Definitely check that out. And the Oniverse is really kind of spooky mysterious dark nightmares and dreams right that is true that is yeah. true the onirim is all about escaping dream world through these magical doors and you have to fight off these nightmares yeah. along the way it's pretty spooky it's a spooky game see see huh yeah in a french sort of way crossover so. come on <laughs> it is spooky it's- in my little way uh-huh yeah, that was good. That was good. Thank Chris you. made it work, everybody. Thank you. I'll, I'll be here all week. Don't forget to tip your waitress on the way out. <laughs> so, but, but yeah, check that out if you like solo games or interested in them. And then if you haven't yet, sign up for the Board Gamers Anonymous newsletter. Go to BoardGamersAnonymous.com. There is a sign-up box on the right side of the page, or at the very bottom, a little box will pop up if you read the page for long enough. And sign up for that. Just need your email address, and you are automatically entered into a monthly contest for a chance to win 10 bucks. And every week, I'll send you an update with our most recent reviews, podcast episodes, etc. So it's pretty cool. Get early access to all that content and a chance to win 10 bucks. So why not, right? Well, I mean, if, do you have to sign up in blood? I mean, you could put some blood on your keyboard, but yeah. I don't know if it would get to me. Okay. That doesn't sound very sanitary. Uh, well, it depends on if you share your keyboard. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, as long as you don't have to sell your soul to get the newsletter, I think it's okay. Yeah, no, it's just your email address. I mean, for some people, that might be akin to a soul. You mm. can use a burner. It's okay. You just have to check it because if, when, if you win, that's how I contact you. So don't actually give me a complete burner email address. <laughs> I won't know who you are. And just to remind everyone again, our YouTube channel is constantly putting out new content. Anthony's got reviews up there. Table for One's up there. Board Gamers Anonymous is up there. So if you're looking for another place to connect and get some more board gaming goodness, make sure you check out our YouTube channel. Subscribe, and you're going to have a ton of content there. Hey, before we get on to the games, we wanted to take a second to let you know about all the different ways you can connect with Board Gamers Anonymous. Now, usually we talk about this at the end of the episode, but you're pretty busy and you don't really have time to listen to the end of the episode. So to start off with, we of course have our famous Facebook page. Anthony's always posting and updating that site. So if you want to get constant contact with us, find out what we're thinking about, answer questions with other fans from Board Gamers Anonymous, check that out. And also, there's our Twitter account. You may remember that Daniel volunteered Anthony to keep that updated. So you want to get on there and tweet Daniel so that Anthony knows what you're thinking. It's really, honestly, the best way to connect to Board Gamers Anonymous. As I said earlier, don't forget our YouTube channel. It's just another great way to connect with our content. And also, 
If you haven't gotten a chance yet, we really do appreciate all your reviews on iTunes and Stitcher. You know, the more content that we're able to put out there and the more reviews that we're able to get, the more we move up in iTunes ratings. So it is possible that someone out there who's maybe just starting to get into board games may not realize that there's board gaming podcasts out there. So by us moving up in the ratings, our board gaming podcast pops up there. People may give it a listen to and realize all the great board games are out there. And then who knows? They may join you at a meetup or at the table later on. So please rate, subscribe to us so that we can get more great board gaming content out there. And also, don't forget our Patreon account. It is the trick-or-treat season, so we're giving you some great content. Why don't you hit us up over there? You know, even $1 makes a big difference, and it allows us to get more great content out there to you, and it gives us an opportunity to connect with you and find out what you'd like to hear on upcoming podcasts and upcoming YouTube channel. So that's everything for our social media contact. Please connect with us so that we know that you're out there and not some just disembodied listener, and we can connect with you for the future so we can build a better podcast together. And now, our Acquisition Disorders. Acquisition Disorders? That's crazy! Only needs the base game, nothing else but the base game. The base game and the expansion, see? Nothing else. Just the base game and the expansion and the promos. The base game and the expansion and the promos, and of course, the upgraded components. Why wouldn't you have the upgraded components? So the now we want to talk about our Acquisition Disorders. You know these. These are the ones that makes you go crazy. You mean- so Anthony, with that said, why don't you start us off this week? Okay, so talking of madness... I am actually going to start with something thematic. I don't think I have anything else thematic on my list, so this one has to go first. Okay. This is... <laughs> I, if you'd asked me six months ago if I had any interest in a Cthulhu game, I would say, no, not at all. Everything I've played is horrible. They're too long. Blah. <laughs> six months later, uh, one of the games we'll be talking about later, and I've already spoken about on this podcast, Cthulhu, very Cthulhu-heavy, and now one of my most anticipated games for the end of the year is the Arkham Horror LCG from Fantasy Flight Games. Now, the reason it's anticipated, cheating a little bit here, is not necessarily because it's Arkham. It's because it is a very solo-friendly LCG with a campaign mode designed by, or co-designed by, the designer of the Lord of the Rings card game, which is one of my favorite games of all time. So, really, it could have been almost any theme, and I would have been equally excited. But this is the Halloween episode, so let's just pretend spooky, spooky, haha. Uh, <laughs> it it's basically taking all of the Arkham mythos and turning it into that LCG format. Uh, and what makes it unique is it's it's you know it's very similar in ways to Lord of the Rings card game. You're going to be building a deck. You're going to have your investigator, and it's going to be built around that. But what makes it different is that not only is it really designed so you can play it alone, but the the deck you build will be able to stick with you throughout the game. You're going to be able to add things to it and change it in different ways, but you really are building a character and building them over the course of a campaign, which will happen over the course of you know their usual deluxe expansions and their monthly releases. But it all starts with this core set, which should be out, I don't know when, sometime in the next few weeks. It is very exciting to me just to have a pure, naturally solo LCG. The the Arkham mythos is actually fairly interesting now that I've gotten into it a little bit uh, with the Mansions of Madness. But it's still not something that I'm very familiar with, uh, at least from the, the Fantasy Flight universe that they've created. So I'm interested in getting into it and seeing what it has 
Uh, this is definitely one I'll be playing over the holidays a little bit, especially because I think the first deluxe expansion is coming out like a month after the base set. So there'll be a lot more cards to buy almost immediately. All right, so that is my first acquisition disorder for this month is the Arkham Horror LCG. And I know Chris is judging me over there for the Cthulhu uh, walk back, but you know, I'll take it. It's fine. The second game is something I know we can all agree on. That's the expansion for Seven Wonders Duel, Pantheon. So this released at Essen, I believe. At least I saw plenty of pictures of it being played. Uh, And it is the first expansion for the uh, Seven Wonders Duel, the two-player game that by all accounts is currently more popular, even in outselling and getting outplayed um, over Seven Wonders. Which doesn't surprise me too. I mean, it does surprise me, but not too much just because there's such a market for two player games that play like this just quick and accessible, but very strategic and portable and all those things kind of mashed together. So to see an expansion out for it just a year later, it's fantastic. And they're actually doing something that, that was never done even in the original Seven Wonders, and that's throwing in the pantheon from several different civilizations. So you have the Greek, the Egyptian, the Middle Eastern, um, different types of gods that are going to be added here with the mythology tokens, and then the actual ability to activate these gods and goddesses instead of taking cards from the pyramid during ages two and three. So it's a very interesting way to kind of add new powers and new abilities and even a new board piece to the uh, game without necessarily just throwing a bunch of new cards in or adding a different drafting mechanic. Uh, It really does add something different and unique. And I'm excited to play it. Honestly, I didn't feel like Seven Wonders Duel needed anything else. I think it was pretty complete out of the box, but I'm going to take it because it's more awesome candy goodness. So there you go. (laughs) Seven Wonders Duel Pantheon. So this is another one I'll just pick up as soon as it pops up in the store. So would you say that this is, you know, akin to Seven Wonders Leaders? Kind of, except in Leaders, I guess you're you're starting with those Leaders. And, I mean, you're drafting them, but you're starting with them. Whereas in this, it's more, they're out there for people to activate. It's a little different just because, I mean, but that's, again, kind of the same idea as the basic game itself. Because everything is out there for anybody to grab. Sure. Because um, it's a two-player game. So, yeah, I mean, I guess it kind of fits into that vein of things. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's a little more interactive i'd say than leaders where you just kind of have that one extra power and honestly i might use one of those leaders cards in the whole game although it does kind of guide you in what direction you're going so i don't know having not played it i don't know how it's going to play because it's a little hard like reading about it it's kind of hard to know how this is going to stack up uh versus the base game Mm -hmm. but you know replacing the guild cards for example in age three with the grand temples which is a completely different take on the game, like taking the guild cards out of the game. That's just, it's an interesting take uh, on Seven Wonders in general. So I'll be interested to see how that plays. All right, Daniel, what about you? What spooky games do you really want? I want the spookiest games of all. Actually, they're not thematic (laughs) in the slightest. Um, I'm bad at holidays, and I'm especially bad at like Halloween. I don't know why. I used to really be in it when I was a kid. It just doesn't click anymore. Did did you get a rock? Did you get Charlie Brown? (laughs) No, I did not get Charlie Brown. I had good Halloweens as a kid. I just, you know, it just sort of faded away. I think because I was like on the later end of the kids in my neighborhood. So as I was getting older, Halloween just got emptier and emptier until there was just nobody. Uh, you know, say lovey. So sounds spooky. Uh, but <laughs> <laughs> and losing the magic of childhood—that so, is the spookiest thing of all. So, so more like an existential horror that you're bringing to the podcast this week. There, there we go. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> Indeed. Uh, anyways, the uh, the acquisitions I hope to make to smother the existential dread for just a little bit longer and you know hold it off at bay with purchases. And this is getting really grim. <laughs> we're just we're, okay. We're gonna drop that line. Anyway, uh, I've got two games on my acquisition disorders uh, for this week. Uh, the first is Tiny Epic Quest, which by the time this podcast is uh, published and by the time you're listening to it, should have been on Kickstarter for a couple of days. It's, it's Kickstarter's opening on the 28th of October. And I'm just a sucker for Tiny Epic everything. So even knowing as very little about Tiny Epic Quest as I do, I'm already kind of in. Uh, just because I know that they really haven't made a game I've been disappointed in. So far, except for, I, I haven't actually played Tiny Epic Defenders, and I know that's the one that usually gets thrown under the bus if one of them has to. But Tiny Epic Western and Galaxies and Kingdoms have all been fantastic. So I am ready to jump in and take a serious look at Tiny Epic Quest when it finally launches on Kickstarter. I've actually seen very little about it, except for, you know, they've got a picture of the box up and that sort of thing. But we should be hearing a lot more about it soon, and of course they'll have some uh, some more details once they launch the Kickstarter. The other game that's on my acquisition disorders, and this is going to be related to my at the table, so here's a little bit of foreshadowing, uh, is the Ascension's Collector's Editions, both Year One and Year Two. Now this is kind of a a distant dream because the Collector's Editions are somewhat expensive, and I don't have that much money to just throw around at the moment. But uh, I've, over the last week, played the Ascension Apprentice Edition, and I'll leave my comments about that for the next segment. Uh, but to give you a clue of the, how I felt about it, I now feel very strongly that I want to own everything Ascension-related. Uh, for those of you not familiar, Ascension is it's a deck builder made by some Magic World champions, I think, some, some world champions from the Magic the Gathering tournaments. Um, and it plays like most deck builders play, it's very smooth and very polished, which is important with a deck builder, that everything just sort of cascades into the next piece and that there's obvious chains of abilities you can do. It has the same sort of standard approach, I think, of, you know, you try to narrow down your deck by removing the bad cards and, but at the same time, adding good cards so you get the sort of concentrated power. And I've enjoyed what I've played of it. And so now I'm ready to jump in and just get my hands on everything. So those are, those are my two acquisition disorders for this month. Tiny Epic Quest, which I know very little about because it is yet to release, and Ascension Collector's Edition, which I know stuff about, but I'm not going to talk about right now because talking about it at the table. So, you know, suspense is spooky, right? Like, that's spooky. <laughs> So are you, are you ready to be consumed by the game that is Ascension and in all its multitude of expansions? I I am hoping, like, as I understand it, the Collector's Edition is all of the, the good stuff, right? The best stuff. Um, so I'm hoping to pick those two up. But they are they are pretty expensive, so we'll have to see. I might have to go piecemeal because I don't think I can throw down that much money on a single uh, single game right now. But it is definitely on my radar. How about you, Chris? What's on uh, your acquisition disorders for this week? I'm not looking at the table. I'm actually looking at the tablet this week. And what I'm looking at is two games that I really do enjoy. And I'm actually pretty surprised that they're actually getting a uh, you know an app release. So 
First up is Tim Fowers' Paperback. Now, I never got a chance to pick this game up because it was in limited release originally, and then just between missing it when it would go on sale and just kind of disappear, it was always a little rough to pick this game up. If you haven't played Paperback, it's actually my favorite word-building game, and I know it's one of Anthony's favorite games. I'm not a strong speller, so talk about horrifying childhood trauma. That would be spelling for me. But with Paperback, actually sitting down and playing a card-building game is actually a lot of fun because it incorporates deck building into the game. You are you know, using your strategy to kind of get the right letters, and it really allows a lot of engagement for people that don't know all those kind of like two- and three-letter words that you know makes you a Scrabble champion and makes other people never want to play Scrabble again. So... Uh, paperback is a lot of fun. It was already released for iOS, and it's now just recently released for Android. I would recommend getting this for a tablet and not for a phone just because the game itself really needs that big real estate to play well. Now, another game that I really do enjoy at the table and looking forward to getting to the tablet because it plays great solo. So I'm actually going to steal away Anthony's kind of uh, area here for a second. And... That would be Flashpoint Fire Rescue. It's coming to digital. It's going to get an app release. Now, if you haven't played Flashpoint, you're really missing out. Honestly, I feel like it's one of the best co-op games out there. It's got a great theme that's typically not you know touched upon, which is being a firefighter, sta- saving people from these huge fire catastrophes. And there's all these different variations and expansions that are already out there. And you get to play a really great character. You're knocking down walls. You're putting out fires. You're doing hazmat stuff. Uh, it's, it's just really incredibly fun. And it plays great solo. But on the table, it's a real handful. So on the tablet, I'm going to be playing this game solo all the time. So I'm really looking forward to getting those two games on my tablet and getting them played. What's going on, man? What are you doing? <laughs> well, hey, I, I this want- is my territory. <laughs> Well, I feel bad, but I'm I'm releasing a new solo podcast. Yeah. No. (laughs) (laughs) Now someone will get one that's edited. (laughs) Oh, man. Paperback is great, though. Paperback is a really good app. Yeah. Just one out there. I agree. Love that one. And I really like the the fact in paperback when you get stuck on a word, you can actually ask for help. And those the payer who gives you help actually gets like, I think, a victory point for that. I didn't know that. Yeah, there's a there's a rule in there that actually, um, if you're kind of stuck, you can ask everybody for help, and, and the person's word that you take gets a victory point. So um, it helps us poor spellers kind of get through the game. That is good to know. Yeah, and then we crush you on the deck building because it's our only yeah. chance. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, hey, so I have these um, 19 points in my hand. What <laughs> word can I make? You'll get one point for helping me. There you go. <laughs> All right, so that's everything for our Insane Madness Acquisition Disorder. And now, at the table with BGA. All right, so we're back at the summoning table. We are going to hold hands and call forth the games that we got to the table this week. Our board. <laughs> Many, many meeples and little tiny cubes. 
We call you to the table. Anthony, summon up your first game. All right. So I have the very, very, very spooky, heavy, heavy Euro from Uwe Rosenberg. Uwe Rosenberg, I'm sorry. A Feast for Odin. All about farming and trading in Norse village. It's not scary at all, guys. It's not. It's about farming. Yes, but But. Uwe must clearly be an ancient elder god. He might be. Uh To build this, it it does cause some insanity. Okay, Uh, here we go. (laughs) Keep it going, guys. I'll be back. (laughs) Okay, so A Feast for Odin. This is the big, big new release from Uwe Rosenberg, uh, the one he's been working on for the last three years. And it's... I'm, there's really no best way to describe it, but it is, it's a Rosenberg game. There is a lot of worker placement. Uh, I believe there are 70 some odd placements on this board, but don't let that scare you off. Most of them are relatively the same. And it's the way it's broken down actually makes the board fairly, fairly easy to read. The, the main mechanic in this game actually is not the worker placement. That's how you're going to get all your resources, but it's how you manage those resources because the resources themselves come in two trays of four by four each. So you have 32 different slots, 30 different types of resources. It's a lot. And it sounds incredibly fiddly, but they made one very smart decision. They gave you these plastic trays to put everything in that instantly makes it much easier to keep track of everything. If you had piles of all 30 of these tokens on the board, on the table, it would be impossible to keep track of. I would probably give this one a dodge just immediately for that because it'd be a mess. But you throw them in these plastic trays. You don't have to go find them. They just come with the game. It's great. So what you're doing every round, and there's going to be six or seven rounds, depending on how many players there are, is you're getting different vegetables, different produce that you'll be harvesting and or getting from uh, different actions you take, different types of meats and hides and animals. And then you are using some of that to feed your Vikings. Yes, there is feeding your people, of course, but there's a lot of food, so it's pretty easy to feed your people. And then you are trading those things in to get different types of goods. And those goods can be clothing, they can be skin and bones, they can be furs, they could be wool, cloth, all sorts of things. And then you can trade those goods, these are the green tiles, in for luxury things like necklaces and silverware and uh, chains and different types of armor. Um, And all these things are just different size tiles. And these tiles will be placed on your player board which is this giant grid. I did not count the spaces. It's probably over 100, 120, 130. And as you cover this grid, you will unlock higher income and free resources you can get later in the game. But here's the kicker. Half of your board is covered by minus one points. So there's 50 or 60 of these little negative ones. And so by the end of the game, you need to cover as many of those as you can or you're going to lose points regardless of how many points you gain. So when you start the game, the second you start, you're already at negative 60 some odd points. You have to cover all that up. Now, it's not that hard to actually do that. What really makes the game interesting is that there's all these other ways to score points. But if you go too far down any one direction, like you can get ships that are each worth three, five or eight points. You can then emigrate those ships, uh, which is an action you can take, which makes them worth 18 or 21 points. They're worth a lot of points. But if you do that too many times, you're using up valuable resources and tiles that you could be placing on your board. You can get a lot of animals, but those same animals could be used to feed your people or upgrade into better resources. 
You can go hunting or pillaging. You can go purchase these wonderful goods on this separate board, um, which are these funny shaped pieces and various different. All the basic pieces are square or rectangular. These ones are kind of goofy shaped. Uh, like there's a crown and a goblet um, and an axe. They're just funny shaped. And those kind of help you fill up a lot more space on your board, um, but they're pretty expensive. So there's a lot of different things you can do. But at the end of the game, really, all you're doing is trying to fill those boards. But you can then go and buy houses and sheds and go exploring and get more spaces with more negative points that you need, then need to fill with more stuff. So it starts adding up where you kind of have to balance out how many spaces you think you can fill by the end of the game with how many points you want to try to go for. Um, so it's kind of a, this yo-yoing balancing act. You get to decide how many negative points you're going to be saddled with, but it's you get to also make the decision on you know how quickly you want to go in that direction. It's very, very interesting. And probably it plays very differently with each player count. Uh, with two people, you can pretty much do everything you want because most spaces have a duplicate on the board somewhere. You might have to use more workers to take it, but you start the game with five or six workers. You end the game with something like 12. So you'll have a lot of workers to use. Uh, three players is probably the tightest the game gets because there are no extra spaces out there. And in the four-player game, you get two extra spaces on the bottom that allow you to imitate spaces that other people have taken. So I think two is probably the, the tightest way it plays, but so far it's played great with everything. There's a lot of variety here, as you can imagine. And I have not even mentioned the occupation cards. Uh, there are three decks of occupation cards. You start with A. They recommend you start with A. But there's also a B and a C deck. Every card in these decks is different, and every single card has some special ability or bonuses or victory points or special action that only you can take or special bonus that only you're going to get. Actually getting the cards is relatively difficult, and you have to spend at least three workers on one of those three worker column spaces. Playing the cards is kind of difficult. You have to spend four workers. There are individual spaces just to take and spend cards, but they're not really worth it. So as you can tell, there's a lot in this box, but I feel like it works together extremely smoothly. And really the biggest problem with the game is not so much the learning curve because it's a relatively simple game. If you can get someone to teach it to you, you're going to think, wow, that's pretty simple. But if you sit down with this game and you punch it, which takes like an hour and a half by itself, and then you're looking through the rules and you're trying to figure out all these different cards and spaces on the board, it's a little overwhelming. So if you just go online and look at the component pictures and people playing it, it's going to look like somehow Rosenberg took Caverna or Fields of Arl and upgraded it three steps. It really didn't. It's, it's very much in line with those in terms of difficulty. And it's even less fiddly than Caverna. Um, the box is bigger, but it, it is a little lighter uh, just because you don't have as many wooden pieces. And also those big plastic tins take up more space. So overall, A Feast for Odin so far for me is fantastic. I'm having a lot of fun. It's very puzzly. Every game's a little bit different. Uh, the way the occupation cards work kind of force you down a certain path, you know, more similar to Agricola than Caverna. I'd say Caverna and Fields of Arl are more of a sandbox where you can do whatever you want uh, and maybe fight over a couple things like questing. But this is more, you're going to kind of drift in one direction. You know, might be pillaging more or, you know, farming more and have more animals or whatever it might be. And it'll work because it's all balanced in each of those directions. So 
a feast for Odin. I'm, I'm going to play it a lot more. I'm probably going to do a written review in a couple weeks once I've played it more. And I'll be talking about it on Table for One uh, with the solo version next week. So uh, right now, this is a buy. But keep in mind, I've only played it probably four times. So I want to dig into it a little deeper, see how the replayability is. But I'm very, very happy <laughs> to own this at the moment. <laughs> that sounds like a very complicated game, Anthony. It's not It's not any more complicated than Caverna. It's spatial. It's different. It's spatial. <laughs> so are you confident that if I were sitting there, you could teach it to me before my infamously short attention span began to grift? Yes. Okay, that's, that's, that's a check in its favor. If you're intimidated by the description... Know that Anthony knows how little little time I'm able to focus on learning a new game. So you could probably learn it pretty quickly then. It is a lot of components. I don't know if he's challenging himself to see how much cardboard he can put in one box. But somehow it all works together. It feels very balanced. It flows together very nicely. It's a nice puzzle. And while teaching thus far, I haven't really had to do much because people have come in knowing the game. I feel like I could teach the game in 15 minutes. And then the rest is just, what does this card do? And then, you know, that's that's going to happen for a while because there are a lot of cards. <laughs> so it's pretty straightforward, you know, surprisingly so. And uh, I'm that was surprising to me, too. I was intimidated by it myself. And I've had a blast learning it and, you know, knocked it out a couple times in one day after kind of picking it up. So that's a feast for Odin. That is a game that... I am uh, not pleasantly surprised by I expected it, but am now very happy to keep playing. It is a feast of a game. Aha! Aha! <laughs> it's a spooky good time. It was a treat. There we go. We can new rating system just for today. Trick or treat. Huh? Oh, it's definitely uh, a treat then. Not a trick. <laughs> see, I can do thematic things too, Chris. Anyways, next game on the list. <laughs> uh, so this is another game that I had actually had an eye on a little bit back at Gen Con. Didn't end up picking up or playing at the time, but a friend brought it to a game day uh, recently. He backed it on Kickstarter, I think, or maybe he picked up the Kickstarter copy after the fact. And it's called Council of Blackthorn. This is designed by Jay Meyer, uh, Great Northern Games. I think it just came in from Kickstarter over the summer. So the game itself is pretty straightforward you look at the board you look at all the cards and all the components it looks like there should be a lot more going on there there's really not there are four tracks on the board each corresponding to one faction there is the royals and the merchants uh, the legion and the peasants and your job is to get as high on these tracks as you can and you'll be doing that by playing certain cards from your hand that are color-coded to each of these different factions there are dice that get rolled at the beginning of each round, and they'll have a zero, one, two, or three on them. Um, they are six-sided dice, but they're obviously misweighted because there's only four different uh, faces to them. And if you get a zero, you will not move up on the track if you play that card. Um, let's say you're going for the royal track, and you play a royal card. You will not move up on that. However, there's a special text on the bottom that gives you a special ability. You automatically get to do that whether you meet the criteria or not. If you get a one, you'd move up one on the track, and then you could do that special ability if you meet the criteria. Usually the criteria is you must be at a certain point on one of the other tracks. So for example, for Royals, maybe you need to be a four or five on the Legion track. So early in the game, it's really hard to be able to do that because you need to build up all your tracks. Um, a two is the same, and then a three, you get to move up three spaces, but you also have to take treachery cards and these are these green vial cards 
that have zero, one, or two uh, points on them. At the end of the game, the person with the most treachery points from these cards automatically loses regardless of their score, which is kind of brutal. Um, in, our, in the case of the games I played, it didn't actually hit the leader, so it didn't matter too much. But I can see the leader getting hit, losing by one point, and flipping the table at that point because most of these green cards are zeros. I only had three left at the end of the first game, and I thought I was in the clear, and I barely didn't lose. Uh, I think the the leader had four points, and I had two or three, and then the winner had two. So it was very, very close. But the game is very interesting because all these cards are very different. They all have special text in them that allow you to do different things. You can build buildings that have a lot of victory points on them, but also have special abilities that are usually ongoing effects. And I'd say 40% of the cards can hurt your neighbor. So you can play cards, especially from the Legion faction, that will blow up buildings, move people's tracks down, steal their cards, steal their money, steal their victory points. Um, it got very close towards the end where it felt almost munchkin where if somebody was getting close to the end of a track where they could lock it down, people would start throwing cards at them. But it is kind of limited in what they can do, and it doesn't go both ways. Like, only the person who's actively playing can do it. So you're not going to get a bunch of people throwing them at once. Then there's a limited number of cards. So it doesn't go on forever. Also, the game ends immediately if three of those tracks are maxed out by any three players. So you can't manage everybody. Um, and once everybody gets up close, it, it gets pretty close. So I I had fun with it. Um, it was a little stressful at first. Playing a second time once you know how it plays and how brutal it can be definitely made it a lot better as a game, I think. You kind of get a sense of how many treachery cards to get, when to play the mean cards, when to hold them. There are certain things you really need to be doing. There are certain actions that allow you to give those treachery cards away. But sometimes that action is just not that valuable. So you really have to balance that out. But overall, I was very impressed. It's a very enjoyable game. If you don't like heavy, heavy interaction and stabby, stabby in the back, it's not you're not going to like this game, probably. Um, there was at least one person at the first table who got hit a couple times too many. By the end, they were having a good time, but in the middle, it was they, you know, getting that death stare anytime you looked at them with one of those cards. And that's going to happen because it's a tough one to kind of get over that. If you if you get stabbed a lot because you have you're if you get out to an early lead or if you just have stuff people want to steal, that can be a little tough. But overall, I give it a play. It's not something I would pick up because it doesn't really fit my collection. I don't usually bring these types of games out. I have a couple of Game of Thrones games that I still never hit the table. But if someone brought it out and I was in the right mood, i.e. not exhausted, I would definitely play this. So that's the Council of Blackthorn, which I was pleasantly surprised by. All right. So those are my two games. Daniel, what about you? What have you been playing lately? In the last couple of weeks, I haven't had a whole lot of time to play, but I have got uh, two games to the table recently. The first is Ascension, the Apprentice Edition, and the second is Masks, a role-playing game. And, you know, it's talk about each in turn so ascension the apprentice edition is what it says on the tin or in this case what it says on the cardboard box uh it is a version of ascension made simple for people to learn with uh, and it accomplishes that very ably uh, as i said a few minutes ago uh back when we were talking about acquisition disorder ascension is a deck building game and it works in the same way that most deck building games work which is you're trying to concentrate various powerful cards in your deck while cutting out the stuff that isn't so powerful. So you have this sort of constant flow of powerful effects. The game is over when people score 
enough honor points and then you take the honor points you score in game through various card effects so like some cards and you play them you get honor points when you defeat villains you get honor points uh, those honor points that you won through the game through playing and you add them to the value of the cards and whoever has the most in their deck at the end of the game wins uh, I like this system of scoring a lot, actually, because on the one hand, it leaves you kind of not clear about who's actually winning. While you do have some information in the form of the tokens visible to the table, there's a lot of question about how many points are in that deck right now. And at the same time, it pushes you against some of the uh, sort of short-term tactical decisions that you might make in a deck builder in favor of longer-term strategic decisions. So there are sometimes where you'll look at a card and just go, well, this is worthless to me in terms of its play value, right? It doesn't work with any cards I have. It doesn't really do anything that useful, but it's worth a lot of honor at the end of the game. And so that will make you want to buy it and hold on to it, even though purging it might make your deck more efficient. Overall, it's a great way to learn Ascension if you've never played it before. Really only needed if you've never played a deck builder before. Uh, it was a great game for my wife and I to play together because it's got a lot of symbols, and so my wife is uh, uh, English as a second language, so we're, uh, games with a lot of text get kind of tiring after a while. Uh, it's also a quick play game. You can learn and complete your first game in an hour, maybe an hour and a half if you're really pushing it and having weird things happen. But more than anything, it's a great advertisement for Ascension. So it's it's sort of in a weird place where I don't think I would actually tell many people to buy the Apprentice Edition of Ascension. I would really only say you should buy it if you are new to deck builders or very unsure about Ascension. Now, at the same time, it's, a I think, a $10 game. So, you know, it's not a big deal to test out the waters before you jump into the wealth of expansions and alternate versions that Ascension has. But the... Apprentice Edition itself is probably not terribly important to buy. After you've played it a couple of times, you'll either decide to get Ascension, like I have, uh, to, to get the full version of the game, uh, and in which case you'll just never want to look at the Apprentice Edition again, or you'll decide not to get Ascension, in which case you'll probably never want to look at the Apprentice Edition again. So it's in this really awkward place where it's, very valuable as a tool to get somewhere else, right? To make a decision about whether or not you want this other game. But as a game itself, it's very small, it's very narrow. If you like what it does, you're gonna want more of it than it offers. If you don't like what it does, then you're not gonna want it anyway. So for Ascension, I would say you're probably gonna wanna go with a play here for the Apprentice Edition. I really enjoyed it, so I plan on buying one of the full of editions eventually. It might be a while before I can do that, but you know, but it's probably worth playing. If you really are just curious about Ascension and how it plays, it's worth a buy. And it's not terrible if you are the kind of person who brings new people to the table often, and you just want to play one-on-one -on -one with a new player and teach them how to go through a deck builder. It's a great teaching experience for any deck builders because it's very simple and very clean, uh, and you don't have the weirder stuff that some other more complicated deck builders do to sort of, you know, makes it more interesting for advanced players but also makes learning it so much harder. But it's it's probably not worth buying unless you plan to teach people with it. 
or you yourself are very unfamiliar with deck builders or the Ascension system in general. Uh, so that's the Ascension Apprentice edition. My second at the table for this week, rather, is a game called Masks. And I've only played one session of this right now. So Masks is another Apocalypse World variant role-playing game that I've been playing with my role-playing group. Uh, and we've only gotten to play one session. Uh, and we moved this system from Worlds in Peril. Uh, and they're both game systems that are designed around producing uh, an environment in which you can play as a superhero with an apocalypse worldy theme. A good way to think about the difference between these two, for those of you in the know, is that Worlds in Peril is a lot like Dungeon World, and Masks is a lot more like more classical apocalypse world, maybe a touch of um, Legend of the Elements, which is a sort of Wuja Avatar The Last Airbender themed variant which i talked about oh lord a long time ago for those of you not in the know what this means is that worlds in peril focuses a lot on the superhero version of the dungeon delve which is full-on brawl with the supervillain in the middle of the street in the middle of the day and then you're done everyone goes home yeah maybe you talk some you go back to your normal life and everyone else goes back to their separate normal life uh, so what that means World in Peril is very good at is capturing big, bright-colored, tricolor superhero fights. Uh, it's also very good in that it provides an enormous amount of flexibility with the kinds of powers your characters can have. You can make essentially any power profile you'd like because it really is just generated by you saying, well, what's easy for you? What's difficult for you? what's very difficult for you and what's impossible for you. And since you can put anything in those categories, you can very easily scale the game for different kinds of powers, different levels of powers. You can have some people be essentially Superman and others be the Punisher. You can go all over the place and make whatever you want. But it is weak at character-character interaction, I think. So there's not a lot of space for the narrative interaction of two characters hanging out after work or having a meaningful conversation or getting into a fight. It's really an all-work kind of game, right? It's all focused on the, the action of the superhero. Uh, Masks, in contrast, has a lot more room for the narrative stuff. It is also pretty darn good at this sort of brilliant superhero battle thing. Uh, though it is specifically designed for young superheroes who are yet to be completely in their own control, completely expert at what they do. So think uh, if you've seen Young Justice, the TV show, or the comics, I think, will will also fit into that category. The Teen Titans, the old Teen Titans TV show, that sort of feel of young, semi-experienced, super-powered people who are trying to become superheroes in their own right in a team together. Now, one thing about that team element that's very nice and the way they, uh, they build it in this game is that you have a lot of defined relationships and how other people in the team perceive you influences your actual stat array. So something that Masks does that I've never seen in any Apocalypse World variant is have the, uh, your stats are not fixed numbers that represent what capacities you have. They're actually the way you see yourself. And this is partially as a way of highlighting the sort of adolescence of all the heroes that the way they see themselves defines what they can do to some extent. And that is very easily pushed around by other players and the environment. So you can, not even subtly, you can directly influence 
how good other people are at uh, certain types of attacks or whether they're they see themselves as being dangerous or being a freak or being superior to everyone or being um, the savior of the people or being just a normal guy. And the way you perceive yourself in that way influences what sorts of things you're good at doing, right? So if you think you're very superior, you're better at sort of outsmarting people. If you think you're dangerous, you're better at hurting people. If you think you're a freak, you're better at unleashing enormous bursts of superheroic power, that sort of thing. And since these are bumped around so much by the world and other characters, this means that the uh, narrative space of character-character interactions becomes incredibly important. What other characters thinks of you really significantly defines what your character can do. That said, you can resist influence, though it does require a role, so you might fail and they might end up just overriding you. But it is nonetheless a very interesting and dynamic system. It's also the weirdest thing about this game, probably. So if that sounds odd to you, you're right for it to sound odd to you, but I definitely suggest you give it a shot before you rule it out, because I really like it. Masks also does have a somewhat narrower range of superpowers uh, when compared to Worlds in Peril. So if you're thinking of, well, I really want to be this very strange sort of superhero, you might not be able to fit it in masks. But we were able to fit pretty much anybody we wanted in there. I think that Masks is a fantastic role-playing game. Uh, and it's one of the better Apocalypse World variants we've encountered so far. I think the best Apocalypse World variants uh, capture the narrative elements of role-playing very well. And part of this is because Apocalypse World is sort of a rules-light system, right? It's meant to be narratively driven and dramatic. And Masks manages to do that. And importantly, it manages to keep that feeling of character-character tension within a cooperative framework, which is often difficult for Apocalypse World hacks. If you've played the original Apocalypse World, you note, you'll note that they say in the book, it's probably best if you're not all on the same team. If you have the exact same goals, then it's kind of hard to have that tension built in. But the fact that everybody in Masks is a sort of unsure of themselves, unsteady, deeply and intricately concerned with what one another thinks and has all these defined historic interactions and defined relationships means that you're able to have those tensions while retaining a unified goal and a single coherent group, uh, which I think is fantastic. So I highly recommend Masks, certainly play it, probably should buy it if you at all like role-playing games, particularly if you like role-playing games with a narrative bent and, you know, superheroes. Uh, so that's my recommendations for Masks, is a buy. My recommendations for Ascension Apprentice Edition, eh, play, probably. I always liked it, Ascension. I thought it was a pretty solid game. The first edition had some kind of iffy artwork to it. It had a style, and I, I don't want to take it away from it, but definitely plays very easy it's very interactive and as you said the new versions of it really kind of clean things up i don't know i'm a bit of a fan i think anthony was too on that right yeah i've always liked ascension it's uh it's not something i own or play very often because i don't know anybody who owns it but every time i play it especially at a convention if someone's like hey come play this i have a blast with it and i do play the app pretty frequently i think as far as introducing people to deck builders it's either this or Dominion, and I would lean towards this if the theme is not something that would bug them. Sure. Yeah, yeah. it's important to point out that so Ascension right, is made by, the designers are old world champion magic, the gathering players, I think. And so that comes through. You will feel that. 
it is Magic the Gathering, the deck builder, in my in my feeling anyway, the way it comes across to me. Which is good for me because it captures what I liked about Magic and excludes what I didn't like so much, things like the extensive cost and the fact that people would just come in with decks that somebody else designed and that they spent $300 to build and win without actually having any real skill or understanding of the game. I prefer a deck builder where you kind of have to be able to adapt dynamically to what's on the board and what's already in your deck. So those are my at the tables for this last month. Uh, Chris, how about you? Well, my at the tables were completely horrifying and not in the good way. Let me just say it that way. So the first game I want to talk about is the legendary deck builder, Big Trouble in Little China. Now, if you remember or if you were around for this movie back in 1987, you got a chance to kind of peek into the future as far as action superhero kung fu movies were with a really, you know, humoristic bent. Think think Deadpool beats Shaolin Kung Fu. You know, so basically the movie is a tremendous amount of fun. If you've not seen Big Trouble in Little China, you're missing out. Watch it. It holds up because it's, it's making fun of itself. It's making fun of all these genres. And it's making fun of itself in a really, really good way. The movie basically opens with Jack Burton. And, you know, he is this atypical action hero who's coming to save the day and save the girl. And he's got his Asian sidekick, think, you know, Green Hornet. And, you know, he's going to get in there. He's going to save the day. And it turns out that he's kind of the bumbling sidekick. And his, you know, companion, who's supposed to be like this know-nothing kind of guy, is actually the hero through the whole story. Well, when you get a chance to play the legendary deck building game, you're actually playing out this film. So you basically have a two-hour film stretched out incredibly thin over the legendary deck building game. Now, if you haven't played legendary deck builders before, I'm not going to go into too much detail, but basically it is a very simple deck building game in which it has or incorporates a board, or in this case, it incorporates a mat. And you're going to have villains and bystanders come up across this board. And you are going to be able to purchase uh, additional heroes or special abilities, depending on what legendary set you're playing with, into your hand to be able to play later to purchase more heroes and special abilities. Or to attack the villains as they move across the board in these different locations. There's also this master villain and... There are a whole bunch of twists and turns and counter strikes and master twists and things like that that kind of keep the game going. But basically, buy purchase people, take out bad guys, go and take out the big bad who typically has, you know, any number of cards that are duplicates of them. So usually it's it's about four. So when the last person knocks out the big bad in that game, that's the end of the game. You go through your cards, you count them up, whoever has the most points wins even though it's a co-op game this is kind of a weird thing about this legendary system everyone wins if you win everyone loses if the the big baddie wins and yet at the same time there's little point values on the cards that can show who is the true winner now this has always been odd to me and this has been a deck builder that wants to do it all and unfortunately because it tries to do it all it has an enormous number of cards i mean legendary itself the superheroes version is just enormous. I mean, it, it, the number of cards and the number of decks is just 
Wow, it's, it's, it's seriously going to break you uh, as far as sleeving. It's going to break you as far as setup and breakdown time because everything has to be arranged perfectly. Not to mention the fact that you could have a very easy game and walk through it, and that's not good for a co-op game, or have an impossible game and just not get through that at all either. So, you know, it fluctuates so random and radically, uh, it's a bit of a problem. So with this version, you are playing the movie out. And once again, the same kind of thing. There are the hero cards, which are allowing you to purchase more heroes, attack more bad guys. And if you like the movie, this is probably something that you've either looked at or are thinking very seriously of picking up. And I'm so glad that Upper Deck actually took this movie IP up to make a game. Now, that being said, it's pretty much the worst legendary deck building game I've ever played. And I can't tell you how much that hurts me because I really do love the property. Now, there are a lot of problems with this game, and there's really very little good with it. I mean, first off, there's no solo mode. Now, especially since this IP is very unique and very rare and very 80s kind of themed, I don't know, maybe you do have a number of friends who like this, but typically you want to be able to play this game solo so you can actually play through the movie. As I said earlier, since you're supposed to have so many heroes... They're really kind of, how would you say, scraping at the bottom of the barrel to pull out heroes here. So you remember that guy you saw for like a half a second? Well, he's a hero now, and he has like five or six cards for no reason. So solo play, not really going to be working here. What's also surprising here is when you do play with a number of players in this game, a lot of the cards have a negative effect that hits everybody else. Now remember, this is a co-op game. Even though it has that point thing at the end, it's a co-op game. So... If everyone at the table is not playing perfectly together, you'll be playing cards that will actually move cards from other players. It'll actually attack other players. It's really not a fun mechanic. It really doesn't belong here. In addition to that, at the end of the game, it incorporates the showdown mechanic that Legendary had as an option here. Here, it's required. So at the end of the game, once the last bad guy, bad card kind of comes up and is defeated... What you're going to be able to do is draw another hand and then determine who has the most points and they would get that last bad guy card that's typically going to have a lot of points and then you combine all your points and see who wins. Once again, this is a co-op game. It really doesn't make sense to have this mechanic here. It really is awkwardly placed. What I'm really kind of disappointed with here is that this legendary game doesn't actually have the, the more, how to say it, the, maybe they could have done a legacy mechanic with this or maybe an encounters mechanic, like we were looking at Aliens or Predator, where you actually had to go through the movie step by step, and they played that out. I think they missed it. They missed it big here. They had a good idea, but they went with the kind of generic legendary system. Part of the problem here is that since it's not really playing you through the movie so much, I mean, you do have the big bad and you do have the bad guys, uh, the game kind of moves pretty quickly, and typically you're fighting random generic guys through the whole game, so you may not even see the, the good bad guys that you really do want to see. And if you do want to combine it with other legendary systems, you have to keep in mind that, in fact, some of the cards only do really cool effects if you have other character cards in your hand. So let's say you did mix this with you know uh, Marvel Legendary, and you have Captain America... And you have Jack Burton in your hand. Well, you know, he benefits off having somebody else like Margot in his hand. Well, 
turns out you didn't play Margo because she's a boring character and you have Spider-Man instead. So now you're just watering down a game that's already bad to begin with. So that's all really bad as far as mechanics. Let's talk about artwork because typically you're playing this game for theme. If you look at the box, you're going to notice that this is not still captures from the movie, which is typically not a bad thing. I really do like seeing artwork that's drawn for the movie. But here I think it's the biggest mistake they could possibly make for two reasons. One, the movie had a look to it that was so unique and so 80s and parodied things so perfectly that I think that they really need the stills here. Second, this game clearly ran out of money. Uh, So when you look at the box cover, it's got some really nice artwork. It looks like the characters from the movie. And if that same artwork was actually on the cards, I wouldn't have a complaint here. But the artwork and the cards are so bad that you don't even recognize the characters. And I'm a big fan of this movie. So I'm looking through the cards. I'm like, who is this again? Oh, okay. This is Jack Burton. How, How is that possible? It looks nothing like the other card. So when you're looking through the cards, you, it almost, you can almost see the moments where they were running out of cash throughout or paying people less and less because the cards become more and more generic, less and less detailed, and they look nothing like the main characters, and you're disconnecting from the theme. And i got to be honest with you. You know what old Jack Burton says like a time like this? you got to burn this game. It's, if it was a decent mechanic, if the artwork was up to it, I would say just, just a general dodge. But this game is so insulting to such a great movie IP, and it's simply the worst legendary version of this game that if you do see this game, just avoid it at all costs. The artwork is not there. The theme is not there. The mechanics are not there. You just shouldn't be there. Really tremendously disappointing from Upper Deck. They really missed out on this. That does not sound like a game I am going to play. It doesn't sound like a game I would have made either. It just doesn't seem to fit with what sorry legendary is is good at. Yeah, yeah, I was surprised because they you have that encounter system which seems to work a lot better, and then they went back to the original legendary system, which only works now because it's Marvel and there are like fifteen expansions. The base set of legendary is just it's tough to get through. So why do it again and as a standalone? And why would you want to mix these generic random people? in with the superheroes they don't real. there's nothing really special about them and they only benefit typically not always but typically when they have other character cards with them so that means you have to bring more of those generic boring characters with you i i don't get it i just i just don't get what they were doing here other than the fact that maybe they had the ip they didn't want to spend any money but they had the encounter system why not use the encounter system that would have made this game great why not go with the photos from the movie the photos from the movie are great it's just it's it's such a tremendously disappointing uh game and it's such a great movie especially for halloween if you haven't seen big trouble in little china check it out it's a lot of fun it's- i wonder if we could all come up with a better game to make a leg <laughs> a legendary out of in the next like 30 seconds Dawn of the Dead, or any of the, the zombie movies, you could do a pretty good encounter with. So yeah, Army of Darkness with Bruce Campbell playing Ash, you know, th- where all the the monsters and zombies or demons are attacking King Arthur. I mean, that would be a great system, especially for encounters. I would love to see Wolverine and Captain America fighting with Ash. <laughs> this is my boomstick. How about you, Anthony? What's yours? <laughs> oh man, there's so much good stuff out there. I mean, pick any horror movie franchise, honestly. You could do, you know, Friday the 13th, Nightmare on Elm Street, Halloween. You could go camp. You could do something like Starship Troopers. I don't know. There's so much good stuff out there that 
you could really dig into and have fun characters with. I would rather have seen a Charlie Brown, the Great Pumpkin than this. That could actually be really fun. Like, you, I could see a Charlie Brown-themed legendary game being really bizarre but amusing. There you go. See? All right. Well, I have a my second choice is almost as equally horrifying, and actually it comes from a very good place. Uh, recently, Barnes and Noble, my local Barnes and Noble, did a board gaming night. Now, one of the people that was part of my local meetup actually told me about this, and myself and several others journeyed down to Barnes and Noble to check out what they were doing. And hidden all the way in the back, way past the DVDs and music CDs that no one goes to take a look at anymore, was actually two tables set up with a number of different games. Now, the games were a random mix, but one of the games that I hadn't had a chance to play yet was Warehouse 51. Now, this is kind of a small box game, and it's an auction game. And basically what you're doing is you're auctioning for these rare kind of mythical items that basically got collected over the generations and they hold special powers. So what's unique about this game is not that everyone starts off with a certain cash because that's that's any type of auction game. You're trying to get the best value for your money. But in this game, it's a closed economy as in everyone starts basically with 10 gold bars and you're going to be purchasing these objects and when you purchase something, you pass your money to the player to the left. So now if you paid six, now the player to your left has six. And when they purchase something, the money continues to move around in a circle. Now, that seems simple enough, but it turns out several of these artifacts are counterfeits. So between each player is a card that shows which artifacts are counterfeit. So you will have some information looking at the cards to your left and right to see which artifacts are counterfeit and therefore you shouldn't be bidding on those. So a little information kind of helps you out through the game and the artifacts itself, depending on their value, may have some special abilities that could help you out or actually in fact hurt you. Now what you're doing is you're doing a set collection game and it's basically set up by colors. Now this would be a very simple, easy kind of throwaway game that you play once or twice and you kind of enjoy and you kind of move on the problem with this game is when you're running out of money you can actually pawn some of these objects get five money and then what you're able to do is bid again and then you can pawn something else and get five money and then at the end of the game you can pay that back but in double now at this point and kind of take that pawn token off the card and now that card becomes available so you're asking me that doesn't seem too terrible but actually you know what happens or at least what happened in our game well two things happen first off when you're bidding early on the person to your left is getting your money so yes you've collected an object but now you've given the person to your left so much more money that they're almost typically going to outbid you for the next couple of rounds And in our game, we actually had one of our players trying to hoard money because they wanted to get all of their items out of Hawk. So I passed my money to the left, he passed his money to the left, he passed his money to the left, and the person held on to it. So for the last several rounds, money didn't go anywhere. So we had one player who had a lot of money, a secondary player who had some money and was holding on to that money no matter what. And the currency was not flowing. The game kind of, you know, grinded to a halt. 
And that pretty much was the entire game. On top of which, several of the cards of these artifacts that would come up for auction, their special abilities really only work well at certain points in the game. So there are ones that actually benefit you as you pawn objects. But at the end of the game, it's too late because you can only pawn a certain number of objects. So the timing, the randomness, the fact that the currency is closed, the fact that you're passing your money off to somebody else, and the fact that it's a really too simple game for anyone to play... I, I just find that this game's broken. I took a look online, tried to see if there's some rules that kind of fix this, and if there was any reviews that kind of explain this, but everyone's felt that this was a blah game, and honestly, it's more than just a blah game. It's just a bad game, and you really want to avoid Warehouse 51. It's a burn. Two burns in a played- row from Chris. This is spooky. Yeah, I mean, have you played anything good in the last two months? I I don't think I have, and that's really horrifying, let me tell you. <laughs> I gotta get a lot back of good on stuff out there. I gotta get back on the cube train because this is not working for me, my friends. I'm telling you. But I, I really do appreciate Barnes and Noble putting together another board gaming event, and uh, they had a nice turnout. And if you're out there looking for this event, you have to check, you know, really diligently on their website and actually even call their store because their website, when it comes to events, is pretty rough. Like once in a while they'll tell you they're having an event and sometimes it's like, hey, check out these local events and you click on it. And for some reason there's a Barnes & Noble in Kansas that keeps popping up, but I don't live in Kansas, so I don't understand that. But nonetheless, good job for Barnes & Noble. They get a buy. So um, keep up the good work because I will be buying games for you if you keep doing events. All right, so that's everything that we've summoned at the table. And now, BGA's Feature Review. All right, listeners, gather around the table as we summon the top 13 Halloween board games of all time. That's right, Drew. Even you cannot reach us through the Ouija board to stop us from doing a top 10. <laughs> all right. It's Halloween time. All the spooks and the the spirits are out there, and you want to play something with your family and friends that really kind of gets you in the spirit. All right, so we're going to talk about the top, the horrifying, the spookiest, just the games that have the themes that really kind of make us feel like Halloween. So, Anthony, why don't you start us off? Right, so I actually have a perfect segue from the first of Chris's burns this week. I have to get a burn wall up here because I think we have like seven total and three in the last two episodes. It's it's getting bad up there, man. Well, it's the <laughs> hellfire <laughs> of bad games. <laughs> oh, man. So if Big Trouble in Little China is the worst upper deck can do with the legendary system thus far, Legendary Encounters, an alien deck building game, is the best that they have done with this system thus far. And Encounters is a little bit different. And that's probably why this is so good. But it takes one of the seminal sci-fi horror franchises that is out there, Alien and Aliens, and creates a tense, engaging, fun, cooperative experience in the Legendary Encounter system. And since then, there is Legendary Predator, and we have Legendary Firefly. But Alien was first, and in my opinion, still best. And in terms of production, this is fantastic. You have 600 cards, all original artwork. The artwork looks great. Um, You have the mat instead of the board. 
You've got the all the inserts and everything. And yeah, you got to sort it all, but it's fantastic. It comes with all four movies in the box. You're going to work through them uh, as you go through as the various protagonists, Ripley, Dallas, Bishop, Corporal Hicks. And because each of those movies feel so different, each of these different approaches to the game feels so different. And just how tight it becomes and not knowing which of those cards is going to flip over as you're working towards those objectives. It's it's just a lot of fun. You don't know when a facehugger is going to come out and attack you. And if it does, does everybody else in the table have the cards they need to get rid of that? Alien, uh, the Legendary Encounters, an alien deck building game. Very long name, but a very good game and a perfect cooperative experience this Halloween. So my first entry in our top 13 Halloween games is Elder Sign. Now, longtime listeners will know that I have a complicated history with Elder Sign. In the past, it's been one of my least favorite games because it, it can be a little bit weighty at times, a little bit complex. And I do think there are games that kind of sort of do it better. But it is a great Halloween themed game. And the more I've reflected on it, the more I've come to realize that the reason I hated Elder Sign the last couple times I played it is I was playing it with entire table of new players, which put me in that position of like, I'm the guy counting everybody's everything. So I wasn't really able to play the game. I was just sort of the accountant for the table. But when you play with a group of people who actually know what they're doing, Elder Sign is a really pretty fun, kind of heavy, somewhat difficult cooperative game. And it has the sort of great classic Halloween theme of the Cthulhu mythos, the Elder Gods coming and the end of the world. You also get a nice mix of various heroes. So it has a, you know, sort of sub benefit of, you know, you get to put on your quote unquote costume, right? You get to pick your character and be the magically resistant nun or what have you. And that's kind of fun. So if you have a group of people who know how to play Elder Sign or at least are into gaming and quick to pick up how games work when they encounter them, Elder Sign is definitely one worth breaking out for a Halloween romp in a Cthulian horror story. Well, when I think about Halloween themes and the horrifying, monstrous creations that would keep you up at night, honestly, there's one game and one game alone that really does kind of inspire those types of nightmares, and that would be Kingdom Death Monster. I mean, you could just take the idea of all the different expansions being completely horrifying as far as how much it's going to cost you and all the different pieces that go on. But if you take a look at this game, just the miniatures alone are horrifying, and and, and that should be enough to kind of cast you in a, a certain level of, of madness. But if you actually start to read through the story, even just the basic entry into the story, because you may not want to ruin the rest of the game for yourself... It really is a very, you know, deep and horrifying kind of monstrous, existential, dark, dread, evilness kind of creeping up around you. And it really does an amazing job, you know, in theming the game on every level. So if you're looking for something truly horrifying in a tactical miniatures game with a great story and kind of a legacy element to it, you can't do any better than Kingdom Death Monster. Next one on my list is perfect for Halloween. And it, it throws in a little bit of a twist. So it's Ghost Stories, Antoine Bauza's classic, incredibly difficult cooperative game about Taoist monks fighting off ghosts. The, the idea of the game is that 
you'll have one to four players, each with their own monk, moving around these different village tiles, taking the actions on those tiles, but most importantly, fighting off the different types of ghosts and apparitions that come out using the Tau dice that have different colors on them, red, blue, green, yellow, black, and white. And the goal here is to match the colors on the ghosts or later the different incarnations of Wufeng. You're exercising these ghosts. You're trying to get rid of them. The boss who arrives at the end gets harder and harder as you kind of scale up the game, but you almost don't even need to scale up the game because it's so difficult just right out of the box. And this is one of those games because there's so much dice involved that you could just lose and lose and lose and lose and lose and then suddenly win. We somehow got lucky enough to win our first time playing it, which is always throws it always throws me off a little bit when we're playing a cooperative game. But the combination of the fantastic miniatures, the beautiful artwork on the cards, the ambiance of the different tiles, it really feels like you're in that Chinese ghost story aesthetic. And it is a perfect, just spooky enough, not quite gross and drippy, you know, hardcore Halloween-y type of game with that level of difficulty that also fits the holiday. And that's ghost stories. Yeah, Anthony kind of set the bar pretty high there with going right to perfect at number four. But yeah, ghost stories is a great game, actually. Uh, anyway, my suggestion for another sort of Halloween game is Dark Gothic Colonial Horror. Now, you have, again, probably heard me talk about this game before on the show, if you've listened frequently. And will not be surprised, given my tendencies that this is a deck builder game. It's another game that my wife and I played together and really enjoyed. And it's a very good game for capturing the sort of uh, colonial era horror feel of, you know, people with flintlock pistols and rapiers hunting down werewolves on the edge of colonial America. Uh, again, it has a lot of different characters with different roles and powers. So again, you get that little element of wearing a costume, which I kind of like and think is thematic uh, for Halloween. And you also have the the goblins, the ghosts, and the whatnot that you need to take care of. Uh, it's a great game. It's a pretty darn simple deck builder. Uh, it's nice in that it adds one element of complication, which is that it's semi-cooperative, that both of you can lose at the same time, or all players can lose at the same time, if enough bad stuff happens to the town. But there can only be one winner. Uh, and I do like that consideration of you can't just wait. You can't just keep building up. Put some pressure on you to use that deck you're building and to favor strategies that might be more immediate rather than long term, which is a consideration you don't often have in deck builders, in my experience. Uh, so that's Dark Gothic Colonial Horror. Uh, there's also a lot of great expansions for it. I highly recommend you pick it up and give it a shot. One of my favorite hit and roll games is Shadowhunters. Now, I got a chance to play this at our local Myriad Games way back in the day. Now, this would not be a game that I personally would pick out because it's not Q-pushing. But in fact, it's actually a lot of fun. You're going to get a secret roll. And you could be a shadow hunter or you could be obviously one of the shadows and one of these evil creatures. So you have vampires, you have werewolves, you have a whole bunch of different mythical monster kind of creatures. And yet every different character has a special ability that you can activate in the game and kind of really kind of trump the other players. But if you do that, you give away who you are. And since it's a hit and roll game, 
the good guys don't know who the good guys are and the bad guys don't know who the bad guys are. So there is a lot of interaction in the game, passing cards around to try to get information from each other to figure out whose team is on who before you attack other players. But nonetheless, they'll be attacking throughout the game, and the object of the game is to knock out the other team first. Now, that would be kind of enough as a basic game, but it adds in these other kind of random faction players that actually kind of do their own thing. So you have the good guys, you have the bad guys, and you have these random guys who come into the game that have their own kind of win condition. So one character might have a win condition that only activates if they die first, or someone else if everyone dies, or the person to the left of them dies, or under a special condition. This game is a lot of fun for a social interaction, hidden role game, and it's definitely got a really nice creepy theme. And it's just a tremendous amount of fun. That's Shadow Hunters. Okay, so the next perfect Halloween game on my list. Sorry, Daniel, I'm just kidding. Uh, that's Mansions of Madness Second Edition. This is the second Cthulhu themed game that on our list, and the second one I've mentioned tonight. So it is clearly Halloween, and Drew is clearly haunting this podcast because we're going insane. Mansions of Madness Second Edition takes everything that made the first edition, in my view, unplayable and fixes all of it and then makes the game fantastic. Somehow. Somehow they did that. Uh, They redesigned a lot of the game, but really the big part is they put it in the app. The app is fantastic. It has music. It's very spooky. The ambiance is great. And then the game itself is the same core that it used to be with some major tweaks, but you are exploring, you are investigating, you are fighting monsters, you are going into spooky situations not knowing what's going to happen, and it, you almost get that feel of it jumping out at you because of the way the app works and the way you interact with it. Even in the longer scenarios where it's a lot more investigation, it just drips ambiance and you feel like you're in there as one of those investigators trying to track down the cultists. Like I said, not a Cthulhu guy, although apparently Fantasy Flight is doing their best to convert me. Mansions of Madness, if you're looking for a good, long Halloween Day game, this is one to take a look at. My uh, third recommendation here, it's a double perfect game. Yeah, I can I can do it too, Anthony. No. Okay, then time to let that one die. Uh, anyway, uh, my third recommendation, and our, I don't know, some number higher than three. Betrayal of the House on the Hill is, at least in terms of newer games, the sort of classic Halloween game. It gives you, puts you in the place of, again, one of several character roles, so one or one or more costumes, exploring uh, a haunted house with an unknown evil within it, alongside people who may be part of that evil. Uh, or, in fact, you may be part of that evil, and you won't find out until the haunt begins. Uh, because the House of the Hill is a fantastic game. It's worth playing any night of the year. And they just released an expansion for it recently, which adds more content if you do get to play it a lot. And you've actually run through all of the, what, 58 different story outcomes in the original game. Uh, It's fantastically fun. It's got one of the best trader mechanics in board gaming. And I have never had a session go poorly uh, with the exception of one time when the haunt happened on the very first Omen revealed and it ended up being one where people needed to find something hidden in the, in the building, but there were only like two rooms revealed. And one of the guys was in the room with it, so he just grabbed it and won. Which, well, that was 
anticlimactic. But otherwise, uh, it's a fantastic game. I suggest, by the way, that you house rule something like no haunts before the fourth omen or so, if you want to avoid that sort of circumstance. Really make sure that you get a substantial play in. Uh, so Betrayal at the House on the Hill, an excellent Halloween game, an excellent game for any time of year. So jumping back into social deduction games, one of the classic games when it comes to Halloween and all the spookiness, in the board gaming world at least, is Werewolf. But <laughs> recently, there is a much better version of Werewolf, and typically because it only happens one night, and that would be One Night Ultimate Werewolf. Now, there's a lot of goodness to this game, and it's not just because it's only one night and you get to play it multiple times. It's also because you get this amazing free app that comes along with the game. It's got all the spooky music. It reads out all the roles so that, you know, you don't need a narrator for this game. Everyone can play. There was recently an expansion, Daybreak, and there's also other ones that came out recently that you can kind of mix and match. So if you want to throw vampires in there, you could do that. If you want to throw aliens in, it's all fine. But if you're looking for Werewolf in its probably purest form, check out One Night Ultimate Werewolf. Another game, uh, the first one I mentioned was the Alien deck building game, but another sci-fi horror game that I think is a perfect fit for Halloween Again, perfect. I'm overusing that word. Is Xenoshift Dreadmire. So this is the second release in the Xenoshift uh, universe. And it is not really an expansion in the sense that it adds things to the game. It's more of a standalone, although it can be combined with the original Onslaught. But it, it does make a few changes. It makes the game not easier necessarily, but gives you some variable difficulty if the first game was a little bit too hard. And it also adds in weather effects. So there's an extra little bit of difficulty, but also some bonuses you get depending on what weather comes out in any given round. But in general, the game is very much like the original. You are building your squad and setting them up to combat these vicious, deadly creatures on this new planet. This time it's Genesis 7. You're facing the brood instead of the hive. But they're just these nightmare creatures who are coming out to attack you and defend the Xenosathan that you're there to mine, because, of course, we are a corporation trying to mine <laughs> uh, some form of energy on a, another planet, that sci-fi trope. It is very tense. It's a lot of fun. If you play with two or three players, you're just as likely to win as you are to lose, if not a little bit more losing. You're going to face a lot of different types of enemies. Those bosses are just so brutal. And it really does have the feel of that classic sci-fi attempt to encroach upon an alien species and just getting beaten back because they're so vicious. It's a lot of fun and it really fits that theme quite well. My final recommendation for your Halloween games is Dead of Winter, where Betrayal at the House on the Hill has one of the best creator mechanics in board gaming. Dead of Winter has the best creator mechanic in board gaming. Dead of Winter, if you haven't somehow haven't played it or heard of it, is a zombie horror survival game where you play as a cooperative of people sort of bunkered down during a particularly brutal winter trying to survive both the elements and the zombies pounding at your gate. Uh, you pick up new characters as you go through, and each player has sort of their own resource pool to draw from, but you're expected to contribute together. However, it is possible that at least one of you might be a traitor. It is also possible... Uh, oh, actually, guaranteed that every single one of you has some goal that is distinct from merely surviving. That is, 
everybody has something they want to do other than just helping the team out. So hoard medical resources or something like that. Uh, and some people are full-on traders who want to see you all die. The really cool thing about this mechanic, though, is typically it's kind of easy to put your finger on the trader in a game like this. And it's the one person who's not acting rationally, who's not cooperating with you. But in Dead of Winter, everybody has their own agenda. So nobody is acting purely cooperatively or purely rationally, which makes finding the trader that much more difficult and the threat of the trader that much more real. Uh, in this sense, it not only makes Dead of Winter an excellent game, which it is, it won you know, every award the year it came out, it makes it one of the better horror games because it really captures that feeling of the real threat is in the people around you, right? Yeah, there's zombies out there, and yeah, you might get killed by them. But really, the thing you've got to be worried about is whether or not Bill over there has other plans for you than you making out of this alive. Uh, and so I think that makes Dead of Winter not just an excellent game, but a great fit for a Halloween night. Uh, so definitely one you should consider, you know, maybe play you know, one of your favorite zombie films or TV shows in the background while you play, you know, get like a whole theme night going on. Uh, it's a great game, well worth picking up, well worth playing on Halloween or whenever. Dead of Winter. Do it. Do it now! I don't know. And my top Halloween game is Mysterium. Now, place yourself in this type of theme. You are a psychic detective visiting a haunted house, and you're being shown visions in dreams about murders that have occurred. You have to figure out who was the murderer, where did the murder take place, and by what instrument was the person murdered by. Now, once you figure that out, you have to figure out amongst all of the psychics that are there to figure out their murders, who, which murder is the one that's calling from beyond the grave. Now, this game is so interesting and so dynamic because one player is playing this mysterious spirit that's giving out these Dixit-like cards to all the psychic detectives in which they have to gleam a clue that the ghost is giving them through these cards, which are these beautiful, ethereal art. And if they're able to put the clues together, they're able to score points that's going to give them more access to the final round and allow them to see more of the clues to to figure out that final murder. So the game moves quickly. It's a lot of fun. It's interactive. It's beautifully done. It's got great components. It really sets up to be a fun night. And it really is, for me, the best as far as theming for a Halloween game. Right. So for my last Halloween game, I've chosen Zombicide Black Plague. Now, on Halloween, you have to have something that just fits that theme but isn't so overwhelmingly heavy that you're spooked out or can't you know you need a little break zombie side is perfect it's got zombies it's got creatures it's got all that stuff that you want but it's not so overwhelming it's not so disgusting or so uh brutally uh, spooky that you can't play it for hours which is what you want you want a game you can play for the whole day so Zombicide really fits the bill, and Black Plague is the best iteration of Zombicide by a long shot. 
fixing many of the problems of the original game, streamlining a lot of things, making it easier to survive, but also actually bringing in a little bit of strategy and a little more uh, diverse tactics than the original three series of this game. Zombicide Black Plague is a fantastic experience, and you can even throw in the Wolfsburg expansion to have some werewolves in there with it. So it really feels like a good Halloween game that you can sit and play with your friends for hours and hours. And that is Zombicide Black Plague, uh, my favorite of the Zombicide series. So that is our top 13 Halloween board games. Check them out for this holiday season, whether you're playing family or friends or gamers. It's a really great time to introduce new gamers to the hobby through these wonderful, spooky, horrifying themes. And there really is a game for everybody. If you're a really hardcore gamer, check out, as we said, Kingdom Death Monster. Or if you're playing with family and friends who are not into board gaming, check out One Night Ultimate Werewolf. Or, you know, the crowd favorite, Dead of Winter. Or if you do have maybe an RPG fan at the table, you may want to check out Zombicide Black Plague. There's just so many great Halloween-themed games out there. Not to mention all the madness that comes out with all of the Cthulhu games. So be sure for this holiday season, check out this list. All right, so until next time, this is Chris. This is Anthony. And this is Daniel. And we'll summon you a seat at the seance. Spooky sounds, spooky sound effects. Drew from beyond. We're on a budget. Back our Patreon. And more spookiness will have. From beyond.